This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Dave Foster. Dave is a 1031 investor and expert. I'm excited for him to be here. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here today. Dave, tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do. You know, well, um, you know, my my friends and I guess not so friends describe me as a serial real estate junkie. Um, I've lived and breathed real estate and real estate deals of all kinds for gosh, about 30 years now. But the niche where I find myself most is in the role as a qualified intermediary for 1031 tax deferred exchanges. I started doing them for myself and became so captivated with what they were doing for me and the potential for others that we set up a shop to do them for others. And that's what we do now is facilitate those exchanges. Okay, that's great. And give us some context. How many transactions are you involved in in like an annual basis, something like that? Oh, it's a number of transactions in a year. Tens of thousands of 1031s every year. Nationwide, although this is such a a little niche world that a lot of people don't even know about, there's probably between 600,000 and a million 1031 exchanges, which done each year, which is still less than 20% of all real estate transactions that might qualify. So, you know, although we're dealing in a bunch of them, the potential that people have to sell investment real estate and indefinitely defer paying that tax is just huge what they can do. And that's what we're trying to do is spread the word. And so when you say we, who's we? We is myself and my team at the 1031 Investor, uh, my operating folks at Exchange Resource Group. We've been together since the year 2000 uh, doing these for folks. Got how big is the 1031 investor? We've got in terms about of people. How many people are there? Yeah. Yeah, we've got about 20 employees. Wow. And are most intermediaries, or is that some back of house people as well? Well, that's a lot of back of house people as well. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, there are QIs, that's the, the acronym for us. There are QIs out there that will have several hundred or a thousand employees. And they're churning. We've chosen the boutique route where what we do is we try to develop that relationship with the client so that we're their go-to. Because as you can imagine, with an IRS statute that's one sentence long and 10,000 pages of case law, this is something that needs a guide. And that's what we seek to be is the guide that helps get people through these so they can effectively use them. And... For those who don't know, can you explain to everyone what a qualified intermediary is? Because it's obviously different than a real estate broker. It's not an attorney. It's not a, it's not an accountant and it's none of these things. I think it'll be educational for those who haven't done 1031. What is a qualified intermediary? Sure. So in order to take advantage of a 1031 exchange, which remember is you're selling investment real estate replacing that with new investment real estate and not paying tax on the profit in between. 
In order to do that, the IRS requires that you use the services of an unrelated third party whose only role is to document the 1031 exchange at the sale and the purchase and hold the proceeds in between to route them through. The IRS does not let you touch the money. So this is not one of those DIY processes that your accountant simply reports at the end of the year. You actually have to have this person called the QI and they have to be involved prior to the closing of your sale. Otherwise you can't do the 1031. Now, this thing is like what my grandpappy used to call being two miles deep in a two foot wide creek. So it's not something for the, just the average person knows or wants to know, but by and large, it is mostly attorneys and accountants that have gone into this field. I'm the redheaded stepchild in our firm. I'm the accountant. But what happens is we're the only ones nerdy enough to want to develop this niche. And that's all we do is the 1031 exchange. We can't be your real estate broker. We can't be your attorney. We can't do your taxes. So it's a very narrow role that we fill, but it's required. So I guess at the end of the day, Chris, we're kind of like Switzerland. We're everybody's buddy. <laughs> so, okay. So let's walk some people through the process of a 1031 for a second, right? So let's just say I own a piece, as you say, of investment real estate. Uh, for purposes of this podcast, let's say I own a freestanding McDonald's, okay? <clears throat> Round numbers, we'll just use total hypothetical. I'm gonna sell this McDonald's for $3 million. I have a buyer identified. Um, is that when they call you? Do they call you before they decide to sell? What's what actually happens? And then what do you think is best practice? Sure, exactly. What actually happens is that I still get calls every month from someone saying, I sold my property this two weeks ago. The money is at the title company or it's in my account. I'm ready to do a 1031 exchange. And I have to say, no, you're not. And then I weep with them a little bit and we get a round up for next time. The best practice of what needs to happen is when anybody is starting to develop their paradigm of investing, they want to begin thinking whether a 1031 exchange is going to fit into their model. Is it going to be something where they want to take a long look at investing and use the deferred tax dollars for their own investing benefit? which means sooner rather than later for purposes of developing strategy in a model. Realistically, anytime you get a contract to sell a piece of property and escrow is opened up, that's the best time to involve a QI because we're going to work with the attorneys or the title company that's handling that closing. So we have to be involved soon enough that we can work with them, that they're not inconvenienced, so that we can get the 1031 set up. Because the 1031 officially starts with the closing of the sale of your old property. Does so, that make sense? Yep, no, I'm super familiar. Uh, I think, so one of the things that I think is interesting is what is the, you, you mentioned you're calling the attorney and the accountants, what is the QI doing? And you mentioned set up the 1031. What are you setting up? Right. So there's three roles that the QI has to play. The first one is documentation. 
and there's some very rigid and specific documentation that's required. There has to be an assignment of the contract rights from the seller to the QI. Now, this, the QI does not take title to the property. We should not take title to the property. The deed should go directly from the seller to the buyer. But in this strange quirk of IRS thinking, it has to look like the QI is actually selling. And then on the back side, the exact same thing happens. The contract rights are assigned to the QI, but the deed transfers directly from the seller to our client to complete the 1031. There also has to be an exchange agreement that outlines definite, much like a listing agreement for a sale of property, that kind of thing, but it's for the 1031. And then there also has to be some notifications with all the parts of the transaction. Now, the reason for all of this rigmarole is that at the end of the day, the IRS wants to ask the question, did you, Chris, sell a piece of property? The answer is no. The QI sold the piece of property. Well, Chris, did you buy a piece of property? No, the QI bought the property. It's just that the deed went from me to the buyer and from the seller to me. Well, then, Chris, what did you do? I exchanged properties with the QI. And that's where that term, 1031 tax deferred exchange comes. And it's actually, there's actually a, a case decision out of the Second District Court of Appeals where they call the 1031 exchange a work of legal fiction. <laughs> How's that for a backhanded compliment, right? But that's the documentation that they require. So the QI has to document that very specifically. The QI has to consult to make sure that you're following within the rules. There's timing requirements. There's requirements for how the entity must be, how the entity on the old property and the entity that owns the new property is going to be. There are reinvestment requirements of how, what you have to purchase in order to defer all tax. All of that is part of the purview of the QI working with you through that. So documentation, consulting, and then lastly would be security of funds because you're not allowed to touch the money, either by active receipt, uh, by a constructive receipt or actual receipt. If you touch the money, you can't do it to 31. So the money has to go to your QI. Obviously, we're holding millions and millions of people's dollars. You better have some protections, right? So all of that is what's built into the 1031 exchange. And like I said, the IRS requires it. So we do it, but the power is that you get to take all of the deferred tax and deferred depreciation recapture and use that to go buy new property where the income is gonna to be to your benefit, not the government's. Yep, super helpful question. Let me get a little, little personal here. Can you handle personal, Dave? I can handle personal. All right. So I think everyone kind of has an idea of like what closing cost cost on a deal. What does it cost to pay a real estate broker? Obviously, it's I'll say it's market driven, but it's you know, it's the most loosely market driven thing. It's really like the deal you make with the broker. But I think what how do costs work for a QI? 
they are going to be somewhat spread out, but it's like gas stations. For some reason, we all kind of congregate around the same number. They're not cost prohibitive at all. A 1031 exchange for a property less than a million dollars is going to run you anywhere between 900 and 2000 bucks. Got it. Most of that's going to be dependent on where the QI has to pay for an office. So as you get to each coast, they're a little more expensive. You get to the Heartland, they're a little, a little cheaper, you know, but they're not cost prohibitive at all. So you're going to be hard pressed to find a transaction that ends up being more than say 5,000 bucks, even for the largest of sales. And again, it's because our role is so limited that, you know, we're not doing nearly as much as you are as the broker. So, but that, that's a typical cost. So, um, I think, you know, this 1031 was a hot topic in the, you know, in very recent times coming as a uh, new presidency happened in the United States. We were talking about, you know, they were talking about getting rid of 1031 or changing it dramatically. What were you thinking as that was all going on? Uh, my exact thoughts, here we go again. Because every president I've been under, Republican and Democrat both, have all looked at 1031 with an eye towards eliminating it. Why? Because it's low-hanging fruit. They all think, oh, if we get rid of that, we get all these capital gain tax dollars. The problem is, though, and Ernst & Young and several other really respected accounting firms have done studies on this, in exchange for getting the capital gain dollars from the investors that can't do 1031s, you give up ordinary income tax dollars from two real estate brokers, from two title companies, from two attorneys, from two inspectors, two appraisers, two house painters, two whatevers that are all involved when a real estate transaction happens. And you start to do the math and you realize that Wait, getting some capital gains dollars at 20% is not nearly as good as capturing a bunch of dollars at 30 to 40% from Got these it. other trades. Yeah. So it's keeping the volume going. It's also a great inflation edge because the 1031 exchange makes dollars work harder. It keeps turning them over rather than printing new money. And so it can be edge against that. It's kind of interesting. 1031's been around since 1922. Yeah. And in their original state, they were meant for farmers who would who were wanting to grow and build and buy bigger farms. But if they sold their property and then had to pay the tax, they would not have enough money left to buy the new farm. And our nation desperately needed growth in the agribusiness industry. So that's when 1031 came into play so that they could then buy their new property without having to lose the tax, which also meant that new farmers could come in and buy the small farms. And you just kept this whole industry churning. Well, think about that from real estate. If we stagnate the real estate market by getting rid of 1031 exchanges, you're just not going to sell your properties. You're going to look at that tax bill and say, nope. I'm making a good enough return. We're going to sit. When you do that, that means the guy above you is not going to sell his property to you. 
he loses. That means that the younger guy below you isn't going to be able to buy yours and move up. And we stagnate the industry. So calmer heads prevail. President Biden's plan went away. The uh, the Senate unanimously voted to leave it alone completely. And once again, the day was saved and 1031 continues to do its thing. Correct. That's how it played out. Uh, the uh, Let's talk about asset classes. Do you see... It, you know, it's all real estate asset classes, but do you see it working better in certain asset classes than others? You know, in, 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 in my world, I see it geared towards what I would call a specific type of investors and in certain types of asset classes and some asset classes in, in the real, when I say asset classes, I'm talking all investment real estate, but sub right. Multifamily industrial office retail. When I'm talking, the asset classes. Are you seeing any where like, it seems the investors stay away from doing a 1031 and for good reason? Staying away from a 1031. Well, I wouldn't say so much that, but there's really two types of investors out there. There are those investors that are niche oriented and they're really not what I would call pure real estate investors. What they are, are hotel management firms, retail management firms, um, self-storage management firms. But because it's real estate, they're real estate investors. But their desire really is to stay in that niche. They don't want to stray from it. Now, for those folks, they will go more quiet the hotter their niche gets because there's fewer opportunities to buy so later as a market matures so 1031 does kind of slow down until there is the opportunities within those but they're not going to stray from it where the real opportunity to take advantage and this is maybe kind of the flip side of your question but the real opportunity is with people who are type agnostic who are wanting to grow their money and wealth from real estate investing. And this can get really interesting because as the market grows through its cycle, different types of real estate and asset classes will emerge for a while. So in the early, in the early days of this market, um, the foreclosures were everywhere, but where were those foreclosures? Single family homes. And so all kinds of people jumped in to become real estate investors buying single family homes and then being able to sell them for multiples very quickly as the market heated up. Many of these people recognize that, wait a minute, what I can make off of one home, I can make off of two. So they use the 1031 exchange to move into small multifamily. And it's strategically identifying what market is emerging first and the key to successfully 1031ing for these people is you sell your asset that's in a hot market and you go find what I call the holes in the market, the asset class that hasn't emerged yet or the location that hasn't emerged yet. 
California has a huge run always early in a market. But you know what was crazy on everybody's radar in 2014? Austin, Texas. So they sold out of California and into Austin, Texas. But what happens in 2019? Austin, Texas isn't such a bargain. So what is? Cincinnati, Omaha, Fort Lauderdale, take your pick. The same thing is true of asset classes. The market goes from single family homes being the darling to multifamily. When you can't find multifamily deals, no matter how big you go, what do you do? Everybody moved into self-storage. And all of a sudden, self-storage became the thing. In your class, you then saw, didn't you, these incredibly compressed cap rates in retail. Because when you're sitting on retail real estate, you're the king. But it's hard for people to find bargains to 1031 into. And that's what everybody wants when they 1031. Unfortunately, there's a poison pill. And that is that the best time to sell and start at 1031 is the worst time to buy and finish one, a seller's market. Because you can sell it high, but you're probably going to have to buy higher. That's, that, that's and a, you've got to recognize that and be realistic. It's a yeah. great point. Are you seeing, a, a, are you seeing, given there's just overall less transactions on in the in the real estate market right now are you seeing less activity right now oh absolutely yeah absolutely 1031 now the question's going to become chris and this we don't know yet know how it's going to play out but we're seeing significantly fewer 1031s but significantly more expensive 1031s kind of interesting. Oh, interesting but from 2000 to Why is 2006 that? appreciation got it fair enough yeah. Last appreciation. From 2000 to 2006, we always had a holiday slowdown. The markets just shut down from November until February. And then they would go crazy from March until October, November. That has not happened for about four years. It's just been full speed ahead, 12 months, 365 days a year. This is the first year that we're seeing a downturn and it started in November. So the question on everybody's mind is, is this back to a normal seasonal slowdown or have interest rates, availability, the uh, fact that sellers aren't budging much yet, starting to cause a cycle type slowdown. I don't know, we'll find out. We will find out, okay. You have a story of a 1031, you know, I think, I think I'll, I'll preface that 1031 has been a great advantage for most. And it's a really, you know, an, uh, an interesting opportunity for many investors. I think it's, you know, a great advantage that we can take uh, uh, at times. And um, it is, you know, something where many real estate folks uh, are for, but sometimes it doesn't work out. Can you give a story on when the 1031 didn't work out. Absolutely. So, you know, let me go back for a quick second though to your McDonald's example, because this is how it all starts. <laughs> uh, you mentioned you were going to sell a McDonald's for 3 million. Hypothetically, and, yeah, this is hypothetical. Yeah, now the 1031 was going to work out, et cetera, et cetera. Let's suppose that you bought that several years ago for 2 million. 
Well, you're sitting there, you're going to make a nice million bucks on it, right? That's beautiful. What people forget is that there's another shoe that's going to drop if you don't do the 1031. And that is for the, the last number of years, let's just say it was 15 years, you have been taking depreciation on that, which reduces your basis. So if you bought it for $2 million and it had depreciated out by half, you're actually selling that property as if you had paid a million dollars for it. So you don't have a $1 million gain that's taxable. You have a $2 million taxable gain exposure. That catches people by surprise all the yeah. time. So that makes the 1031 even more critical. Here's what happened to our poor guy. This was back in 08. The market had blown up and crashed. He was over leveraged. His asset, which was a strip center in Fort Myers, Florida, had lost 60% of its value. He had to sell or get foreclosed on. The problem was he owed more than he could sell it for by several hundred thousand dollars. But he still did a 1031 exchange. Why? Because he'd owned the thing forever and his basis in it was zero. So even though he had to bring, as the seller, a check to the closing table for a bunch of money, he still saved money over time because he then did a 1031 exchange. And actually, guess what? He had to bring a check to that one as well, Oof. to the purchase. Oof. But he still saved money because of the depreciation recapture that he was able to avoid. Wow. So the lesson he learned was pay attention to that and don't be over leveraged. There you go. Well, I really appreciate the time today. Interesting story. Thanks for bringing us through the 1031 from a QI's perspective. Haven't had that on this show before. Really, really uh, interesting stuff. I'm going to take us to the last piece. Got three questions for you. Unrelated to what we talked about, but they're fun questions. You ready, Dave? Let's go for it. Question one. What extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? Okay, the one that's truly extinct is Books A Million. But I got to tell you, my heart is with Sears. Got it. I hope they make it, but I don't think they're going to. Question two. What is the last item over $20 that you bought in a store? Silverware from Bed Bath & Beyond. Got and it. it was my wife's choice. All right. <laughs> Question three. Okay. If you and I were shopping at Target and I lost you, what aisle would I find you in? You know, unless Jennifer Lopez is doing an in-person visit to that Target that day, you'll probably find me just one aisle over from you and Sporting Goods. Got it. Fair enough. Really appreciate the time today, Dave. It was a pleasure. Thanks for teaching the audience about uh, 1031. My pleasure. Anytime, Chris. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.